Amen. You know, it's been said that uh, we make choices, and in turn, those choices make us. I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. I know it was certainly true for the people that we've been studying about in the book of 1 Samuel. They made a choice, and it was a bad choice, and now they're experiencing the consequences of that bad choice, that this whole uh, we-want-to-be-like-all-the-other-nations experiment has completely imploded on them. The one that they chose, the king that they chose to rule over them, to reign them, to lead for them, lead them and to, and to fight on their behalf, has now been disqualified because of his perpetual disobedience towards God. And so now it's becoming evident to everyone that they had made a bad choice. You know, I think that all of us in one way or another, we can identify with this, right? That we've all know that we've made some bad choices along the way in some really important areas of our life, that we've sometimes made decisions uh, more based on what looks good or what's convenient, or sometimes just simply because it's what we want, and not oftentimes really sought out the will of God and wanting to know what He would choose for us, or even worse, some of us have gone as far, and I would say maybe most of us have gone as far as knowing very clearly what God's choice was for us, And yet we chose to do just the opposite. We just ignored it altogether and did what we wanted to do. And because of that, we have all, shake your head like this if you know what I'm talking about, that we've all experienced the consequences of that. At best, it's been inconvenient. At worst, and sometimes it's been devastating. Very, very difficult what we've had to suffer because of our own choices and not submitting to the choices of God. And so what we find, that's why the scriptures basically uh, command us and, 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 and encourage us in the scriptures. In Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. In the story that we've been reading, this particular people had not trusted in the Lord. They were doing, they were leaning on their own understanding. Their leader was not, uh, their leader was not acknowledging God in all his ways, and their path certainly was anything but straight. And so what we find through this is, is this. These were all the results of, the, of a bad choice that they made previously. But now in chapter 16, we begin to see hope. Hope is good, yes? Hope is good. We begin to find that there is hope despite some of the bad decisions that we make, and that's what we need to hear. We need to feel the sting of those bad decisions. We need to understand where that takes us, but we need to understand as well of what God has for us even when we've made some really bad decisions. That's what we see. So what we're going to find is we're going to see contrasted the people's choice with God's choice. And we're going to see that it's radically different. These two things are completely different with each other. And here's what I hope to do. I hope through today and through next week, because really this was a very, very long message. Instead of six pages typed, it was 12 pages typed. And I realize there's no way I can get this all in on Sunday morning. And so I do what I normally do. I cut the message in half, try to figure out how, where to cut it, which means usually both messages are terrible and incomplete. But that's what we're going to have today. We're going to just preach the first half of a two-part message and And really what I hope to do both this week and next week is this. I really hope that after today and after next week that you are encouraged to trust God. 
that you come to the point that you trust and you believe that God truly does know what is best for us and that we will entrust ourselves to that and we will choose what it is that he chooses for us. So with that in mind, let just two things we want to see today. First of all, and speaking of hope, we see the hope that God's choice brings. The hope that God's choice brings. Now, follow along in your, in your Bibles, if you will. Beginning in verse 1, look at what it says. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now Samuel, Israel's last and possibly greatest judge of Israel, he's in, he's in bad sorts right now. He's not in a good place. He's down, he's depressed, and as the Word of God says, he's grieved. The question is, why? Why is he so down? Why is he so blue, Samuel? What's, what's, what's got you down? Now, if you look at his life, he probably had a lot to grieve about. Not everything went exceptionally well, or probably the way that he would have planned it out in the beginning. It rarely ever does, amen? And so for him, looking back in his family, he could have grieved over his family. He, like you and I, had great expectations for his children. He wanted to raise them up in the admonition of Christ. He wanted them to follow in his own footsteps. He wanted them to take over the family ministry uh, when he retired. He wanted them to be the judges of Israel after he uh, stepped aside. And we saw that they were disqualified from doing so. The people rejected them because they were corrupt. The Bible teaches us that they were receiving bribes and they were perverting justice. And you know as well as I do, we grieve probably most over the condition of our children when they make bad decisions. And, and it causes us great grief, right? Sadness in our own lives. So certainly had a purpose to grieve. His ministry had not been all what he had been intending it to be. Remember, he started the ministry earlier than any of us. He started when he was a child, just when he was old enough and he was weaned. His mom was like, all right, you're going into full-time ministry. Drops him off at Eli's house. God's house and says you're going to stay there for the rest of your life and you're going to serve God. And so he's been doing this for a long time. So think of this. His entire life has been spent pursuing God and helping God's people to pursue him, to know what the will of God was for their life. And the end of it, here's his retirement party. He's ready to step aside and here's how the people appreciate him. They say, listen, we're sick and tired of being led by judges. So basically, after you lived your whole life being a judge, the people want a wholesale change and say, please, no more judges. We want a king to rule over us. Nothing says encouragement like total and complete rejection, right? So he certainly could have grieved over that. There was a lot for him to be able to grieve over. But here in this text, what I want you to see is he's not so much grieving for himself. He's not grieving over, per se, his own failures. He's not grieving because of the own consequences of the pains that he's experienced in his own life that he's caused himself. Instead, it's far more specific. It's far less focused on himself, and it's, it's more outward. He's grieving because of Saul. God says, how long will you grieve for Saul? Why? Now, 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 he could have been grieving for Saul. It could have been like this. Every time he thought of Saul, he again inwardly began to feel bad, seeing it as a personal failure of himself because he was the one who had anointed Saul as king. And he could have looked, look, even, even this isn't working out in my misery and, 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 and begin to feel like a failure. But that's not it. It's much more specific. It's much more directed than this, his grief. His grief is sadness because of the sin of Saul itself. 
He is heartbroken because this young man is making bad decisions. He is heartbroken because he is sinning against God. And now he's experiencing the consequences of God. And the consequences for him is he's been rejected as king. This is what's bringing all the grief to his life. Not any of the pain that he's brought upon himself, but, but rather the pain, or, or somebody's brought on him, but rather the pain that someone else is bringing on themselves. And it's not only Saul that he would have been weeping with, he would have been grieving over the state of Israel as well. Why? Because it wasn't just one man who had sinned, it was the whole nation that had sinned by rejecting God's leadership and, and wanting a man to, to rule over them. And so now what's going to happen to them? Who's going to fight for them? Who's going to go before them? What do you do with a king that has been disqualified to lead God's people, but he refuses to leave the throne and leave his position? This is the place that Israel is finding themselves. Now listen, saying all that, you might think that, that Samuel didn't have it all together, that maybe he was a bit of a failure in his ministry. We, we don't often think of people being successful that way, but let me tell you something. Samuel, because of what's happening here, is, demonstrates himself to be an amazing man of God. This is a mature, this is a real, this is a guy who really does get the heart of God. How do we know that? It's been said, let me say it this way. One of the ways you know that you are getting this whole Christianity thing and you're becoming more like Christ is when you can genuinely rejoice with the well-being of other people. Okay, let me, let me, let me say it this way. When you have a coworker that you've been working with and they came in after you and they get a promotion over you and they get a bigger paycheck and they become your boss... When you could get to the point where you could say, I am so happy for you, and you're not lying about it, and you're not saying it by being green with envy, but you genuinely are excited for the well-being of how that person is being blessed, or your kids are not doing so well, and somebody else's kids seem everything they put their hand to seems to turn to gold, and they come up to you and they go, hey, my son just got accepted to Harvard Law School, and you sit there and go, congratulations, I'm happy for you, and you actually mean it, you're doing well. You, you got that, right? You're acting like you don't. Okay, you, you, you do, whether you admit it or not. But the opposite is true as well. When you can truly learn to begin to weep over the sin of other people and the consequence of their sin that they begin to endure, that's a demonstration that you're truly getting it. And I don't mean weeping over other people's sin because their sin is now negatively impacting you. We're good at that. Weeping over our sorrow, the pain that somebody else has caused us. But when you begin to weep for other people because of the sin that they have committed and because now they're suffering from it, that's a demonstration that you're truly walking with God and you're truly getting this whole, whole thing. Let, let me ask you this. What do you weep about? What, what grieves your heart? Some people aren't here today because of a stupid football game last night. Let me tell you something. If the Gators grieve you, you're going to go through the rest of your life grieved. Yes? I mean, I, I, I hate to tell you. I don't, I don't know if there's any way out, all right? Jesus, maybe. I mean, you know, we're, we're hoping, you know, that whatever. But I'm, but, but I'm telling you, people are more grieved. People were more grieved over the election. Why are you so grieved? And they would say, well, I hate the state of their country. They were afraid of their 401k, their job, their security, their military, everything else. That's what they were grieving over. But have you grieved over the lostness and the sin of other people in another world, in this world? Have we, do, is that what makes our hearts grieve? I, I'm reminded of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, it, it, there, you, you know Jonah. Jonah hates the people that he was sent to to be able to, the Ninevites, right? He doesn't want them to hear the good news. 
that they can be saved and they can turn and they can repent and be made right with God. So what does he do? He's out in the hot desert, and all of a sudden God allows a plant to be able to grow up and to be able to give him shade, and he loves it. And then God sends a worm to come and kill the thing. It dies, and what does he do? Oh, he's angry. He's grieving. He's mad. Oh, blasted worm. Where's my shade? And he's so upset about this. And what does God do? He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in a, de- in, in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Do you not know this? Do you not? But what do you weep for? What do you grieve over? Is your, is your heart grieving for those who are lost? Are your, is your heart grieving or is it only for yourself? Now, let me say this. It is certainly appropriate to, to, to grieve. It's, it's appropriate to grieve. Notice God didn't come to him and say, hey, you shouldn't be grieving. He says, how long will you grieve? Can, can I say this? It's appropriate for us to grieve over our own sin. And I think that that's a problem with the church oftentimes is that we don't. That we look at our sin as just kind of moral failures or accidents. And what I believe that the word of God calls us is to be genuinely grieved to the deepest core of who we are when we fail God and we've sinned against him, especially when we've gone a period of specific sin against him, knowing that we're doing what is wrong. There is a period of great grief that we should, that we should experience in that. Is, is that correct? Scriptures tell us very clearly, James 4, 9 through 10 says, says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There is a time to weep and to mourn over our own failures, over our own sin, and even the consequences of our own sin. There is even, I would say, that there is even a time to be able to mourn over the sin that has infected you that somebody else has brought upon you. They sinned and now you're suffering over it. But here's what I would ultimately say. Even though there's a time to mourn in all of that, we can't stay there. That's what God is telling him. You can't, you, can't, you can't stay in that place of mourning. You've got to come up out of that. You can be down. You could be devastated because of your own sin. Uh, you, can, you could be down right now because your life has not gone the way that it is. You're experiencing those consequences of sin. But God doesn't want you to stay there. Does he want you to feel the depth of that sin and the seriousness of that sin? Yes, It's a part of repentance. It's a part of coming before God and recognizing that we've done what is wrong. But God is loving, and his hope is he doesn't want you to remain there. He wants us to move. I I love 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse, or or, or, uh, in 2 Corinthians it says this, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Every time we choose to go and do our own thing, and we begin to experience the consequences of that, and we're devastated from that, the good news is that there is hope in that if we reject our choices and we begin to submit to the choice of God. You're in the pit. Things look blue. Things look bad. Things look awful. But God sits there and says, that's not the place that I have for you. Are you deserving of all of that? Yes, you and I are deserving of all that and a whole lot worse. But the hope of God's choice is that the moment that we repent of our own and begin to receive this, there's hope. That's what's happening in the text. He says, you guys have done it your own way. You have, you, you've suffered your own way. He goes, but I have a better way for you. Yes, it was a serious sin against me, but there's hope in me now. 
He says, look, you're going to make the wrong sinful choices, and for some of those choices, you and I will pay dearly for them. This is a time to mourn over those decisions, not only for the results of the sin, but the sin itself. However, we don't stay there. When we submit ourselves to God's ways and his choices, there is a bright future and a hope that awaits us. Listen, I'm not promising you today that if your whole life has fallen apart because of your consequences, because of the consequences of your own sin, that you're going to come today and you're going to say, God, okay, enough is enough. And I'm going to quit what it is that I'm doing. I'm, I'm not selling you perfect peace and I'm not selling you a perfect life that says the moment that you turn from your sin and say, I'm not doing it my way, that all of a sudden your whole life is going to be all roses and everything is going to go perfectly for you. But what I am saying is there is hope in being restored to God and moving into a place of blessing with God at the point that you reject your own choices and you begin to receive and submit yourself to his. Does that make sense? I hope it does. That's the first point. Only one more point that we have. One more point. So we see here, we see that there is a hope. There is a hope that, that God's choice brings. But the second thing that we see here is the wisdom that, of God, that God's, choice, uh, of God's choice demonstrated. Now look at verse 2 here. He says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If, Saul's here, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say that I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint me with him whom I declare to you. So understand, Samuel knows what God wants. You got that, right? What does God want to do? He wants to set the king over Israel. He wants to make the choice for the people. So he knows what he wants. That's very clear. What he doesn't know is, is how to get there. He doesn't know the way to get to the will of God. Do you see that? He's like, you need to go to Bethlehem. That's where the king is. And he goes, but if I go there, I'm going to be killed. All right? So it's not a, it's not a question about what God wants. It's a question of how, what, what is the way that I get to where God wants me to ultimately be? Because what's going to happen? He goes over to Bethlehem. Saul's going to find out about this. And Saul's already tense. Why? Because he's in sin. And that's what sin does. It makes us kind of squirrely. Where we think that everybody's after us. We have a guilty conscience. And so here he is, and he thinks if he hears word that he's gone to Bethlehem, he's going to begin to think to himself, guess what? He's undermining my authority, and he's looking for another king. I need to watch out for that. And what is he going to do? He's going to end up killing Saul. The funny part is it's exactly what he was doing. So he's like, how do I do what it is that you've called me to do? I, I want that. I want you. I've seen what it's like for us to pick a king for ourselves. I, I want your choice for us. I want that. But how do I get there? What's the way to it? And God reveals to me. He says, look, take a heifer with you. Take your heifer with you. Go over. Go into the city. Just track with me. Go over to the city and, and, and offer up an offering. If somebody's there and they say, why are you here? Say, I'm here to make an offering. And you are. You're going to make a sacrifice. But at the same time, while you're there, you're also going to be anointing a king. And so what happens is, so God tells him not only what he wants, he tells him ultimately how to do it. He shows him not only what he wants for him and his people, he also shows him the way to be able to do it. And what's even more importantly than that, he not only shows them what he wants for them, he not only shows them the way to be able to do it, but what I love is he submits his will to God and he actually does it. Look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
He goes, consecrate, he goes, consecrate, uh, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them uh, to the sacrifice. Now, we're not sure why these elders are so nervous. There's probably several reasons why they're nervous when Samuel shows up at their front door. One could simply be that they heard about the, the falling out between Samuel and Saul. And so they think that if, if, if Saul's going to get back at Samuel, that they're going to get caught in the crossfire and they're going to be in trouble. It could simply be that they're struggling with principal office syndrome. You know what that is, right? Not really an official thing. I make that up, but I think you know what it means. It, 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 it basically means that you feel the absolute worst is going to happen whenever you're confronted by authority. Your boss comes by and says, hey, I want to meet with you for a second. And you're like, what did I do? Or what did I not do, right? Your wife says, hey, we need to talk tonight. That can never be good. That's going to be awful. You're not expecting her to go, I just want to let you know that you are awesome husband, right? You're, you're expecting the worst. I, I get this as a pastor. Hey, man, hey, let's grab lunch sometime. What, what, what's going on? What, what, what happened? What? You know, and, and so there's this, there's this tense. We don't know what happens, and it's really not all that significant. You know what's significant is that he submitted his will both to God's way and to God's wants. That's the key. Now, let me, let me unpack this for you, and this is where we're going to just spend the last couple minutes. You with me? You with me? Here's what I want you to see. I think this is where some of God's people struggle the most. I know that it is for me. God's people often want what God wants for them, but they have a hard time trusting God's way that he has for them on how to get there. Okay, so kind of like this. God comes and says, I've given you marriage, and I want it to be the great, apart from a relationship with me, it would be the greatest, most fulfilling, most loving, satisfying relationship that you have apart from me. How many of you want that? And what do we do? Hey, sign me up. That sounds really, really good. And then he says, okay, let me show you the way. Wives, I want you to submit yourself to your husband. What? I want you to submit yourself to your husband. In other words, I want you to give up your rights, and I want you to stop fighting for your own way to get your own way. And I want you to come, and I want you to entrust yourself to God and entrust yourself to your husband and say, hey, look, I'm no longer going to fight to get my way. I'm taking my rights, and I'm giving them to you. You look after my needs. You look after my cares. You look after the answers. I'm trusting God through you to look after those. Then... He says to the husbands, now husbands, here's what I want you to do. I want you to die to yourself. Oh, I'm willing to give my life. No, 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 no. I want you to die every day to your sin and yourself and quit trying to lord over your family. And with your authority, I want you to become a servant. What I want you to do is I want you to die to all of your wants and your desires and what it is you want. And I want you to pick up her rights and I want you to champion them over yourself. And you know what 98% of God's people at least at one time say? I want what he wants, but I'm not so sure I'm willing to go the way to be able to get there. You with me? Okay. I don't know if you are, so I'm going to keep giving illustrations until I'm convinced of it. There's a wife and a husband who their husband or wife are not believers. And every time they come to a small group, they pray, you know, pray for my, for, pray for my wife. That, say, pray for my husband that will come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
I said, well, listen, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing everything I possibly can to be able to lead him to, to Jesus Christ. But what does the scripture say? 1 Peter 3, 1 says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And instead, what is the wife doing? Man, she's trying to get in the word in every opportunity that she can. I mean, the guy can't go to the restroom without scriptures plastered all over, you know, all over the mirror. Christian music constantly being played all over the place. Christian literature all laid out, just hoping that they're going to do. They got an opportunity. Every time he says something, he goes, oh, man, I hate when we lose that football game. You know, it reminds me of a story of a man in the Bible that lost of his story. And, and so they're constantly going, going, going. And her, 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 um, um, uh, impulse is to give more word, give more word, give more word. This is what I want. I want what God wants. I want him to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God says, I have a way, but it's not going to be through your many words. It's going to be through your life in full submission to me. It's going to be through your actions. But what a lot of women will not do is they sit there, God, I'm not going to give up the way. I'm going to do my own way to be able to achieve that. Money is another one of those ways. Let's just unpack this. This is probably one of my favorites. Somebody comes in and goes, man, we are hurting financially. And I think, I think some people think that the church is a bank. I really, I really do. It's kind of like, uh, and I'm not trying to be inappropriate here, but it's kind of like, hey, listen, I've, I've got this Maserati out there that I really can't pay for right now. I've kind of hit some bad times. So uh, what do you think I should do? Uh, sell the Maserati? I mean, you know, that's, that's kind of my, my, my thought. And if you can't afford it, then maybe, okay, you're, you're like, I don't like that advice. But, but here's, here, here's where you go. And, and this is normally what we do. They sit back and I'm really struggling financially. And, and we say, I'm sorry. What's going on with, with your life? What, what's, what's going on? Sometimes you can do everything right and still be struggling to scrap together enough money to be able to make it. But sometimes we sit there, and one of the first questions I ask is, hey, how has your, how has your stewardship been with God? I go, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what have you been doing? How much of the money that you have has been used for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you begin to teach. Part of what God has given you is to take care of you and your family. Part of that is to be a blessing. But part of that is also to be a blessing to other people and to be able to have the gospel go throughout all of the world. And so what, I, what the Bible is telling you to do is the way to get out underneath this financial bondage is to be able to give more. Do you think that makes sense to the individual who doesn't have enough to be able to pay the bills? It doesn't make sense at all, right? So what they say is they say, do you have another way about going about doing that? So there's all these things. Let me, let me give you one more example. Actually, I'm not going to give you an example. Let me just say this. I say with all of that, that we want to trust God for the plan that he has for our life. If I were to tell you that God can have financial freedom for you, if I could tell you that God can have a wonderful marriage for you, if I could tell you all those things and that that is what God's will, overarching will is for your life, I think we'd all want to sign up. The trouble is we don't want to do it and we can't seem to trust his way. We get nervous about it. We, 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 we tend to lead different ways. This is what Jeremiah 29 says. Listen to this. You guys know this oh so well. He says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. How many of are familiar with this passage, right? To give you a future and to give you a hope. He says, then you will call upon me. This is what we miss. But then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. The first part is, I've got a plan for you. How many of you want God's plan for your life? Hey, I'm right here. 
then you need to call on me. You need to lean on me. You need to press on me. You need to seek me. You know what that means? You need to seek my way. You need to submit to my way. It may not seem like it makes a whole lot of sense. It may seem confusing. It might be completely opposite of what the world is telling you to do. He goes, but I have a way to what it is that I want for your life, where you submit to it. And then he says, if you will, he goes, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all uh, the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And here it simply is. Some of us are here today And you are suffering because of your own bad choices. And those choices are because you chose to either not seek the will of God or knowing the will of God, you have chosen to go against it anyway. And here you are placed exactly the place that the people are and you have felt hopeless and you felt like there's no way out and you felt like there's no other way to do. You want to have joy. You want to have peace. You want to have a right standing with God again. You want to believe that there's another life and more life for you to be able to come, that it's not over in this pit. Anybody identify with that? And the hope is that there's a hope of God's choice. You'll sit here and say, okay, enough of that. Enough of me making my own choices. I'm now going to know what God wants for me to do, and I'm going to submit to it. And I know what he wants for me, and I take joy in that, and I know that he has plans for me to prosper me and not to harm me. But now what you have to do is you have to trust him that he knows well enough not only what is best for you, but how to get there, the way. Trust the way that God lays out in the scriptures. I think a final example of that would be churches today. And there's this incredible tension for so many pastors to be able to do shortcuts and not preach the whole counsel of the word of God. Hey, there's an easy way to grow a church. You want to know what it is? There's three keys to it. Preach nothing, stand for nothing, and plant a church in the suburbs of Atlanta. That's the three, that's the three keys to be able to really play, grow a church, a massive church. But that's not what, the God, what God says. The word of God says to preach the whole counsel of the word of God. The Bible says even preach the things that are ultimately offenses. Preach in season and out of season. And so even for pastors, they have to be able to decide, am I going to do it the way that seems right to me or I'm going to do it God's way in order to be able to experience what he wants from us? That's where many of us are today. So there's good news for that. But will you submit to the way? You know, I, I always try to look, where's the gospel in the story? Have you noticed that the gospel is all the way through it? Because here's the gospel. The gospel is we are lost people because we have chosen to do everything our way. We have chosen to be able to go our way. We've done right what is in our own eyes. And because of that, we are deserving of death and hell against God. But God has a plan for us, yes? What is that? Restoration, forgiveness, and eternal life. So what does God do? There is a way, and his name is Jesus Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Even in the gospel, even concerning salvation, people will sit there and say, hey, listen, I want what God wants. I want to be with God in heaven. But they don't trust his way. They do it his own way. They think it's through being a righteous person and doing all the right things and being religious and coming to church and all of these things. And he says, that's not the way. My way is foolishness in the eyes of most people. What is it? The way is a carpenter who gave his life on a cross. He died. For you and for me, he says, he is the way. That's the gospel. Look, the gospel is lived out when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then you know what the rest of the life is? Living out that same gospel in every area of our life. 
not making the wrong choices, but making the right choices based on the grace of the God and the spirit that's within us and to submit to him knowing he knows what is best and submitting to his will. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you. We honor you. We love you. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all praise. God, it's kind of a bonus, kind of a shorter message this morning than usual. Certainly grateful for that. And I just pray, Lord, that we won't leave and understand the hope that's in this passage. The hope that's in this passage is that your choices are best for us. That there, it's not the end. Whatever predicament that people have found themselves in, their life is not over. Their hope is not over. They will submit to themselves to your will and your way. God, you've got great things for them. Let us do it in your name. We thank you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?